chapter 6 is the turning point in the early church. You see, up until this point, the church um, is presented as if nothing had ever gone wrong. It was, a, it was a rosy picture, an almost overly optimistic picture of what people are like when they get together in groups. You see, they thought, um, the early church, it looked like people were free of like human things. You know, human things like sin and greed and self-interest and conflict or disagreement. If you read the first five chapters of Acts, you almost get the picture that the people who were gathered in the early church were, well, not really people. They're kind of flat. They don't really have any motivations beyond worshiping God. In fact, it seems like until chapter 6, that it was an almost impossible situation. And maybe it's because they were so small. It's hard to get in too many arguments when you're talking about a really small group. But as people started to come in and as people started to expand and more people became part of this God thing, it was almost inevitable that conflict was going to arise. And see, at the end of Acts 2, what we get is the picture of a church where everybody is sharing and sharing alike. Everybody brings bread to the table to share as a common meal. And everybody brings offerings to the table to share as a common way of caring for one another. And in Acts 4, we get a picture of a church where the rich are selling their houses and their land and giving it to the church to feed the poor. And we can be forgiven for being a little skeptical about the reality of that situation. Was everybody doing it? Or were there just some? And if everybody was doing it, what makes that church so different from the church we find in Acts 6, which is starting to show some cracks, some wear and tear? You see, the early church, it really only had two committees. It had what was essentially the early church worship committee, so they were the people in charge of preaching and teaching. And everybody in the early church agreed that that was the apostles' job. I mean, who's going to argue with Peter? Like, Peter, maybe, maybe it's not time for you to preach anymore. Peter, maybe it's time for you to move on. Like, I'm not going to do that. Are you going to argue with the guy that Jesus told was in charge of the church, right? And so that didn't really become a problem. That wasn't really an issue. But they had a second committee they decided to form. And that was the committee in charge of caring for the poor, you see, if you're the outcast group of society, if you're the outcast group like the early Christians were, chances are you're also poor. And so the only way that they survived together as a community was to care for one another, was to provide for one another. And so if somebody got you know, a boon where they had a good fishing season, then they shared with everybody else so everybody could be fed. And so the conflict that we find in Acts chapter 6 is really a conflict over the idea of who's getting the stuff. Who's getting all the attention? You can almost picture them. It's a group of ladies in a kitchen cooking. And they're preparing essentially what's the early church's version of Meals on Wheels. And they start getting an argument about who's getting more Meals on Wheels care. Is some people getting, are some people getting better meals? Are you cooking better meals for this group than you are for that group? I, I swear, I think you put more food in that box. I think she got an extra roll. 
And I, you know, I talked to her last week and she didn't like the cream pie that we gave her. So I really think we need to give her the cherry pie. Has this sounded all familiar? And so this becomes an argument about how to properly care for the poor and for the widows and for the orphans. And it really should be initially, it looks like a really easily solvable problem. Come on, Presbyterians, we know how to solve this, right? What would we do? Well, there's an argument about, about the Meals on Wheels. And so we would gather together a group of people, a committee, right? And we would, we would go to the mission committee and we would say, mission committee, there's been some concerns about the distribution of food. Mission committee, can you have a conversation about that? And then what would happen, right? They'd have a conversation about that and then we'd go to session and we'd have some more conversation about that. And then we'd make a decision about how to properly care for the poor, right? And the early church sort of did that. They met and they discussed the problem and they decided what they needed to do was to just get some more people who represented each side in order to have this discussion. So they got a few people who represented the Greek-speaking people and they got a few people who represented the people from Antioch and the, the Hebrew and the um, Aramaic-speaking people so that we were well represented, right? This is a very careful process. And they have a discussion and they decide, well, we'll just make sure everybody's represented and that's how we'll make this decision. And so they appointed seven more people to take care of the widow problem. It's an easily solvable problem. They used all their good church polity skills. They used all their business acumen. They used their conflict resolution skills. I'm sure there was appreciative inquiry practiced and everybody had a say. They might've sent out surveys possibly. I don't know what early church surveys would look like, but they might have done that, right? <laughs> they did all the good things that you're supposed to do to handle a problem, and yet it didn't really handle the problem. Because what they forgot is to pray. What they forgot was that the Holy Spirit doesn't always care about the process. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will pick people and put them in places to cause trouble. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will not pick anyone and then just tell you to figure it out, right? Or sometimes the Holy Spirit will say, you know what, you're in the completely wrong direction on this front, we're gonna go the other direction. And that is what our friend Stephen heard. Stephen heard, well, I know that I'm only supposed to feed the widows and the orphans. I know that's my job. I'm just on food distribution, so give me the box and I'll take it. And what he started to do was he the took the box and he went to the houses and then he started to like, you know, talk to people. He took the food to the houses and he said, you know, how are you doing today? Are you all right? Is there anything we can do for you? Can I pray with you? You see, Stephen stepped out of the box. He stepped out of the box of what he was supposed to be doing and started preaching the word. He stepped out of the box of what he was supposed to be doing, which was just, you know, really giving bread to people and started praying with them and caring for them and providing for them. And what did it do? It made the early church upset, these people, because they'd had a process in place, right? We talked about this for months and we appointed Stephen and he was supposed to follow the rules. And you know what Stephen didn't do? Well, sort of followed the rules, but not, not the way we thought he was gonna follow the rules. Stephen got a little big for his britches. So we need to have a sit down discussion with Stephen and make sure he understands what his job is. 
So they have this sit-down discussion with Stephen, with him, and they say, you know, Stephen, you're a deacon, and your job as a deacon is to distribute food, and you shouldn't be sharing the gospel with people. You're supposed to go to their houses and drop the food basket off, and then go to another house and drop another food basket off, and you're taking too much time with the other people. And you're not following the rules, man. Except for Stephen was the only one who got it, because Stephen was the only one who was listening to the Holy Spirit. And so what they did was they took Stephen and they stoned him. They said, Stephen, I know that you are the only one that's following the Holy Spirit, but you know what? That's challenging my power and authority, so I'm going to stone you. Stephen, I know you're the one who's following Jesus, and I know you're bringing all these people into the church, but they're not really the people that we expected you to bring into the church, and so, you know, I think we're going to have to stone you. Or, Stephen, I mean, we're a team here, and you're not really being a team player, so I think we're going to just have to get rid of you, okay? Stephen was the only one who was paying attention to the Holy Spirit. He was going where the Spirit told him to go. He was listening to the words of God. He was following through with that part where it says, go and feed the nations, declaring to them the good news of the gospel. And you see, the people who were in charge of the Meals on Wheels, they forgot the gospel part. They got so concerned about distributing the bread and the fish that they forgot about the good news of the gospel. The Holy Spirit is out of control in Acts. Acts tells us of a Holy Spirit that creates things, that causes movement, that takes people from one place and puts them in another place, that takes people from over here and mixes them up with people from over there. It's a Holy Spirit that's out of control. It's a Holy Spirit that goes beyond what the early church can understand. They understood what it was like when they were disciples, when they were the 12 disciples with Jesus. They'd kind of gotten a hold of that. They'd gotten their hands around that. They knew what that looked like. They didn't know what this church looked like, the one that brought people from all over the world into the church. The one that brought people from the other side of town into the church, they didn't know what that looks like, and it made them afraid, and it made them anxious, and it made them upset. They didn't like it. They didn't like this Holy Spirit-led church. They liked their rational business-led church a little better. And the truth is that they're not any different than us, really. The human reaction to chaos, the human reaction to things that are out of our control is incredibly predictable. We all do this, every one of us, something, as soon as something is out of control, right? And we all have different levels of tolerance for what out of control means. Some of us like being a little bit on the edge. And some of us have very little room for being out of control, but we all do the same thing when we're out of control. The first thing that we do is we withdraw from everyone else. And we make it all internal, right? Okay, so I'm just going to be me until I can figure out what it is the situation is, right? We're all little turtles, and we draw in, and we, and we just wait. I'm just going to be me until I can handle it, until I've got control over it, and then I'll be willing to share. Then I'll be willing to tell other people about it, right? So that's our first step is to withdraw, to isolate ourselves. And then the second step is 
to create a small group of people who think like us and act like us and talk like us and behave and control the situation the same way that we do because then it's still in our control. It's still within what we can handle. It's still with what we can understand. And so we get this us versus them mentality. So it's us, the people who are like me, the people who are right about this issue because they're, they're, I'm right, so they're obviously right too, right? And them, there's them, there's the other people, and they're obviously wrong. I mean, they're, they're just wrong. They have to be because I'm right, and they're not like me, so they're wrong. And that's step two of our, of our dealing with chaos, our dealing with the uncontrollable. And often what happens when we have that us versus them mentality is that we, we see them and we're willing to believe the worst about them. We're willing to believe that whatever their belief system or where, however they approach the problem or whatever they're doing is obviously motivated from bad things. They're obviously terrible people because if they were good people like me, then they'd think like me, right? If they were just God-led like me, if they were just holy like me, then they would think what I think about this situation. I had this happen, um, and we rushed to judgment. That's the second part of that. And so it's not that we are willing to believe the worst of them, not just that, but it's also that we do it really quickly. Like really quickly. We see a picture, or we hear a word that strikes us as kind of odd, and we think... They're one of them. I'm sorry, we're going to have to get rid of you because you're one of them. I had this happen to me last week, not specifically to me, but in a group that I'm a part of. Um, it's, this is so nerdy. It's the Jeopardy, former Jeopardy contestants secret Facebook group. Okay? You only get to be in this group if you've been on Jeopardy. So, you know... You're all out. First of all, all, automatically it's an us versus them situation because clearly we're smarter than you. We've been on Jeopardy, right? <laughs> and I don't know if you've heard about this controversy or not, but um, I guess a returning champion a couple weeks ago made a hands gesture. And he had made a, a number one and a number two and then it was a number three. And it sort of looked like an okay sign, which apparently now is also a white power sign, but I can't keep track of it all, right? And as soon as it happened, there was a flame. I mean, it just, the board lit up. I can't believe they let him do that, blah, 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 blah. And somebody found a picture of him from like 15 years ago wearing the wrong clothing. And it wasn't even that, I didn't think it was that bad of clothing, really. But it was the wrong clothing. And then they found another one from like 15 months ago and he was wearing the wrong hat. You know what I'm talking about, right? And so immediately... Flame war. Flame war. Well, this guy, I can't believe they let him on Jeopardy. And clearly, I mean, he's just a terrible person. And we need to ruin his life, which is what they did. Right? He had to lock down his accounts. He had to um, take everything off of the Internet. And it completely ruined his experience. Now, I don't know. He may be a white supremacist. He might. He might be a terrible person. But I don't know, and neither do they. Right? But we all do this. We all take this little bit of evidence and it's enough to confirm what we already believe about people. And so we take that and we interpret it into a negative way. And we forget that people are people and we all of us fall short of the glory of God. 
And we forget that the Holy Spirit sometimes calls us to act in a way that's compassionate and caring and countercultural. And it just reminded me of all of the ways and all of the times that we forget that we're not in control of that situation, that we can't fix things all the time with rational, logical solutions to things. That we can't all of the time react thinking that we already know the answer to the problem. Because what they should have done, the early church, is they should have taken Stephen aside and they should have asked him, Stephen, tell me about your experience. Tell me what's going on when you meet these people. Tell me what's happening when you tell the gospel to these people and how can we be a part of that? Clearly that's doing something important and valuable. I know it's not what we had originally planned. I know it's not what we originally thought was going to happen. But clearly something's happening here. And how do we get to be a part of that? I know it makes me uncomfortable, we can say to ourselves. I know it's difficult for me to understand what you're doing, Stephen. I know it's difficult to understand why you believe that and why you think that person on the internet. But let me take a moment to listen. Let me take a moment to pause and to wonder with you and to pray with and for you. I think that's what the Holy Spirit calls us to do. I think the Holy Spirit who's out of control, out of our control, this Holy Spirit who creates new things, I think all the time is asking us to step outside of our comfort zone and step outside of where we feel like we know what we're doing and who we are and who other people are and to ask the question and to be open to the idea that other people may be right, at least for this one time. What would it look like if we were a church that followed the Holy Spirit where it led, like Stephen? What if we were a church who went into something open to the possibility that it could become something else? What if we were people who were able to see the gospel and able to see the word of God in the lives of others? What if we acted less like a board of directors and more like a Holy Spirit-filled people? What would it mean? What would it do to us and for us? We may be out of control a little bit. It may cause a little chaos in our lives. It may cause us to be uncomfortable. But that's where the Holy Spirit is leading. What does that look like if we become comfortable with the idea of going and listening and praying and waiting for the Spirit and looking for the Spirit. What if we were more like Stephen? Amen.